Sunday night and realized I was getting sick. So yesterday I spent pretty much the entire day in bed. And so to, uh, yesterday was supposed to be my prep day for tonight. And so that was gone. So I, I got some prep in, but um, there might be some freestyling. Uh, hopefully not too much. I'm not very good at freestyling. So that said, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we, uh, we do pray that you would be at work uh, right now as we are working through um, the book of Hebrews and, and getting to see the glory of who you are and what you have done in the person of Christ. I pray that tonight as we consider the reality of the new covenant that you have purchased by your blood, I pray that we would be encouraged by that and, and uh, emboldened to proclaim your gospel as we go forth from here. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, I don't know exactly how uh, Androids work. I don't have an Android. I have an Apple. But I know with my Apple, when, um, with my phone or with my computer, when I have an update, that update comes up and then when I click, you know, accept, it tells me all of, all of the benefits of doing this upgrade. Right. Does Android have something like that? It tells you all the benefits of doing whatever upgrade. I don't even know if you have upgrades on Androids. So anyways, that's how Apples work. If you're an Android person, they have these upgrade things where your entire operating system just changes overnight. But with every upgrade, it explains what, what comes with that upgrade and explains the benefits of that upgrade. Well, Hebrews functions in a similar way. Right? It's like the badge that comes across the top of your phone and begins to explain all of the different ways in which this new operating system that we call the new covenant is better than the old. That's what Hebrews functions as. It's like the, the, the public relations director coming out on the stage as a, as a public relations director for Apple or something and standing up and showing how every aspect of the new phone or the new operating system, or the new iPad is far better than the one that preceded it. So look at Hebrews 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Right, so here it's almost as though he is the public relations guy coming out and saying, let me tell you all of the ways this new covenant is better. It's more excellent. But we need to point out that the book of Hebrews points out that the new covenant is not quite like the update on your phone. That's optional. If you don't take the update to the new covenant, then you're actually out of luck. Right? He's not just stating here that the, the update is better. He's saying it's the only way forward. If you stay with the old covenant, then you're out of luck. The update is non-negotiable. And in order to highlight the permanence of this system and how the former is now obsolete, Hebrews walks through every aspect of the old covenant and every aspect of the Old Testament and shows how Jesus is better. He is the fulfillment. He is supreme over what we read about throughout the old covenant. So in chapters one and two, we saw that Jesus is better than the angels, 
right? The angels were thought to be the ones who delivered God's word to God's people. Well, Jesus comes along as the word of God incarnate and declares the final revelation from God to his people. We saw in chapters three and four that Jesus is better than Moses and he is better than Jesus because he does not lead his people to the land of Canaan where there is suffering. He leads them to a final permanent promised land in the presence of God. We've seen that Jesus is better than the former high priests, right? Because think through the high priest. The high priest is able to enter into God's presence once a year in the Holy of Holies. Christ enters into the presence of God in the heavenly places once and for all. And he doesn't go there by himself. He brings us with him right into the presence of God. We've also seen that Christ is a better sacrifice because he is actually able to atone for sins once and for all. And now in chapters eight through 10, we're moving to a new section in the book of Hebrews. He's focusing now on the high priesthood of Christ, but he's making a transition. Now he's focusing on why Christ's high priesthood matters in the first place. I mean, this is significant. Have you ever been given a bunch of facts about a product in an electronic store? You go into the Mac store and the sales lady comes up to you and she begins to talk to you about all the the newness of this new gadget. And you're just sitting there going, you know, you're using a lot of technical language and I'm just sitting there kind of like nodding my head. And so she tells you, yeah, this is the new iPad. It's got 4.1 gigahertz of turbo boost, right? And it's got this 500 nit retina display. And you're just like, yeah, that, you know, that sounds awesome. But it's not until they start telling you why these details are significant that you begin to feel impacted by the details. Right? It's once they tell you, oh, what kind of iPad do you have? Oh, an iPad 4 or an iPad 2. Well, let me tell you how much better the new iPad is. Right? It's going to be four times faster than what you have. You go, oh, okay, now I see why whatever it was, 4.1 gigahertz matters. Right? And then they're going to say, oh, yeah, the, the, the display on your new iPad is eight times more precise than your iPad 2. Got it. Okay, now this makes sense. Right? You need to know why these details are important. You need to know why it's important that Jesus is a high priest and not only a high priest, he's the better form of the high priest, right? Okay, I'm glad that you're qualified to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, but uh, what sort of significance does that actually have for me, right? As, As a new covenant Christian, why does that even matter? Which is why chapters eight through 10 are so significant. Here we see three specific themes brought up in these three chapters over and over again to explain why Jesus's high priestly ministry matters. So these three themes are repeated in these three chapters. Covenant, a new covenant in Christ, a better sacrifice, the second theme. And the third theme is entering into God's presence. So Christ, as the great high priest, he accomplishes those three things. Now, maybe you'll find this helpful, maybe not. As I start talking, if you're just like, I'm not really following you, feel free to tune out for the next, I don't know, 45 seconds to a minute and a half. The next three chapters kind of function as a symphony 
you've ever been to a symphony, usually there are multiple movements. So the first movement focuses on all three themes, the sacrifice, entering God's presence, and the covenant. The second theme, uh, movement focuses on all three themes, sacrifice, God's presence, covenant. Same thing with the third movement, sacrifice, God's presence, covenant. But each one of these movements highlights one of the themes. So, so in our chunk tonight, in the first movement of this symphony that'll take up chapters eight through 10, what we see is the theme of the new covenant put on display. So he highlights the fact that Christ has inaugurated the new covenant. So that said, I'm actually gonna skip verses one through six because uh, Vinny and Marcelo are filling in for me while I'm in Estonia and their sections, their, their portions of this symphony focus on these other themes that are hit in verses one through six, and I don't wanna steal their thunder. So I'm just gonna move straight to verse seven, because here we see the theme of the new covenant. So turn with me there to Hebrews, if you haven't already, and we're gonna go in Hebrews eight. Actually, I'm gonna start in verse six, yes. But as it is Christ, has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So as we look here at the second half of chapter eight, notice what Hebrews is doing. Now he's focusing on the new covenant. Multiple times he mentions that the old covenant has passed away and that the the new and better covenant has come. So here's the first reason Jesus's high priestly ministry is significant for the people of God. He brings about a new and better covenant. So maybe you're thinking, I don't know all that much about the old covenant and I don't really know why the old covenant needed to be replaced. Well, again, you need to know the weaknesses of the old graphic card before you realize you need the new iPad. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna focus on first what a covenant is and then what the old covenant was. So let's focus on those two things before we move into our passage. So first off, what, what is a covenant in the first place? What, what does that even mean that God is making a new covenant? Like we need to know what a covenant is. 
Well, a covenant, if you're taking notes and you want like a, a really precise, really helpful definition, this is uh, the, the definition that Tom Schreiner gives in his book called The Covenants. So, I mean, he wrote a book called The Covenants. You can trust this definition, right? So here's what he says. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. So it's, it's pretty simple. You have two people entering into a relationship with one another. And as they're entering into this relationship with one another, they're making binding promises to each other. So a perfect example of this is the covenant of marriage. Over and over again, the Bible refers to marriage as a covenant. So think of what's happening in a marriage ceremony. Two people are choosing to be together. They're choosing to, to wed. And as they're, they're joining, as they're, they're entering into this relationship, they're making covenant promises towards each other, binding promises towards each other, till death do us part. So there's a lot more we can say, but we can't do it right now. If you're interested, in January, our church is gonna do a whole entire series on the covenants. So we're gonna walk through all the biblical covenants from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to the new covenant. So that's gonna be really, really exciting. So if you are able to be with us when we do that, that'll be in January. For now, let's move on. What is the old covenant then? When he's referring to the old covenant, what is he talking about? Well, remember the story of Israel. They were slaves in Egypt. So God rescues the Israelites out of Egypt by appointing a man named Moses. So Moses, with God's help, leads the people out of Egypt. And he's going to deliver them to the land of Canaan, which he had promised to Israel. So he makes this promise to Israel and says, I'm gonna give you this land. And so he rescues them out of slavery and brings them to this new land. And as they're on the way, as they leave Egypt and they're on the way to this promised land, God gives them a covenant. It's, a, it's the law, the Old Testament law. And this is the law that they will obey while they're in their land, in the, in the land of Canaan, in order to maintain their relationship with God. Right, so they have this relationship with God. God says, here's the covenant I'm making with you. And they are called to keep this covenant in order to maintain their relationship with God. This is known as the old covenant. Sometimes you'll hear it called the Mosaic covenant. Sometimes you'll just hear it called the law, right? Or if you're Jewish, you say the Torah, right? They're referring to the, the Mosaic covenant when they say that. So what was the law? What was in the law? Remember, first off, God gave this law to a nation. So this is a major difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. God made this with a nation. So in a way, the old covenant kind of functions like a constitution, I guess you could say. It's more than that, but it's kind of like a constitution for the nation of Israel. It, it was given to this people who, who were in, they, they had a national identity. And so many of the laws that we see within the Mosaic law, they, they aren't really moral. They're, they're like pro about property rights and things like that, right? It, it, these, are, these are laws that you give to a nation. But we also do see 
in this law, that there are moral components. There are moral components because this isn't just a nation. This is the people of God. And as the people of God, they're supposed to represent God to the surrounding nations. And so when you think of the moral components, think of the the 10 commandments, right? Do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not covet. And many of the moral components of the law carry on to today, right? These, these are still in act today because when you get to the new covenant, all these laws are repeated. The moral components of the old covenant are repeated. Now, the last thing I need to point out is that the law also included a sacrificial system, right? This is also part of the law. There's this massive book called Leviticus. If you've ever tried to do a reading through the Bible in a year plan and you get to Leviticus, that's when everything slows down and you really think about just quitting the whole plan, right? You go, I have no clue what he's talking about, right? Like bringing two turtle doves and bringing, you know, a ferret's nest, right? That's not in there. But, you know, he's like giving all of these specific details about sacrifices and offerings and and incense and this tabernacle and you're just kind of, your mind's spinning and you aren't sure what's going on. It's, this is part of the relationship. If Israel wants to maintain a relationship with God, then something has to deal with the fact that this people is a sinful people, right? So God graciously gives them this sacrificial system in order to help them maintain this relationship with their God because they're gonna fail the moral components, right? They're gonna fail in the moral components of the law. What then? What happens when, when this guy does covet? What happens when she, she does commit adultery, right? So there's a sacrificial system, um, which actually, I, you know, I said the woman commits adultery. This is actually just proof that the old covenant is less superior than the new. If you committed adultery under the old system and you're a woman, you were stoned. So um, just proof that the new covenant is better. So um, let's keep going. So. That is actually in there. Now, that said, that gives us a a little insight into why we need a new covenant. You see, the old covenant, the reason the new covenant was promised is because Israel failed to keep the old covenant. So they broke the old covenant. You see, God gave them this covenant And he told them he would bring judgment on them if they failed to keep it. And yet God is exceptionally gracious with the people of Israel. He puts up with their sin for thousands of years. And then eventually they go so wayward that he he allows them to go into judgment. And so remember, they came out of Egypt. They were in exile in Egypt. And then after breaking this covenant that they made with God, God sends them back into exile. Now they're in Babylon. And this context is important when we think about the new covenant because as the people of Israel are going into exile because of their disobedience, at the very same time, God's prophets are promising a new covenant. So they just broke the old covenant. Now they're reaping the... the, uh, the horrible uh, results of disobeying this covenant by going into exile. And as they're departing from the land of Israel, 
After breaking the covenant, God is promising them, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, which is so helpful for us to recognize. Notice how in Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 12, this is a a long quotation from the Old Testament. We read it just a moment ago. This comes from Jeremiah 31. Remember, Jeremiah is one of the prophets who is watching Israel go off into exile. And so as they're going into exile, God is giving Jeremiah this promise to hand off to the people of Israel as they go into exile. So now let's just look at verses 8 through 12 to see what we find here about the new covenant. First off, in verses 8 and 9, we see that this new covenant is promised to the people of God. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with those of the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So, here God is promising his people that one day they will experience the benefits of a new covenant. And as we've said, the reason this new covenant is even being promised is because the people just broke the old covenant. They broke the first covenant that God made with the people of Israel through Moses. Now notice the grace of God we see here. Just in the fact that he's promising Israel a new covenant in the face of their disobedience. God was gracious in the first place to save the Israelites from Egypt. He was gracious to initiate a relationship with his people in the first place. He didn't have to engage with the Israelites and yet he chose to freely. He chose to show his kindness towards them and then they walk in disobedience and they break the covenant. They fail to keep the promises that they made to God. So God is sending them into exile justly. And yet, like we've already pointed, pointed out, as they're going into Israel or into exile, simultaneously, God is sending them there with a promise that one day he will bring about a new covenant that he will establish. You see, God's promise here trumps Israel's disobedience. God's promise trumps Israel's disobedience at this moment. Because God is going to stay faithful to the promises that he makes to his people. I mean, think through Genesis chapter three for a moment. What happened right after Adam and Eve fell into sin? God comes to Adam and Eve with a promise of deliverance. Eventually, your seed, your offspring, he's telling Adam and Eve this, your offspring will crush the head of the serpent. That is the devil. Right after their disobedience, God is making a promise. And he will see his promise through into fruition, regardless of whether or not Israel obeys. 
He makes this promise with them. They disobey it. And yet his promise with Adam and Eve still stands. He will see it through. And in fact, as we stand here on this side of the cross, we know that God has seen this promise through. And he's done so in the most profound of ways. Remember, he sent his son to fulfill the old covenant that the people of Israel were incapable of fulfilling. And then after doing so, he died for those who were incapable of keeping the old covenant. And do you realize that for, for you, brothers and sisters here tonight, God's promises trump your disobedience. God freely forgives. So even when you fall short, there is an abundance of grace in God's right hand, right at God's right hand. Remember, who is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places? Christ Jesus. Grace is overflowing from the throne room of God. So when you fall short of God's glory, as everyone in this room does, on a regular occasion, God's grace is still there, flowing from God's throne room. Now let's move on to verses 10 through 12. So from here on, we, we begin to see the different benefits of this new covenant that we have in Christ. First, we see the new covenant brings about obedience. Then we see that this new covenant will bring about a restoration in the relationship that we have with God. Next, we see the covenant will create a new people. And finally, we see that this covenant will bring about the forgiveness of sins. So verse 10, the new covenant brings about an obedient heart and mind. In verse 10, we see that the people of this new covenant will be marked by obedience. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. As members of the new covenant, you are given a new heart and a new mind so that you can become capable of obeying God. Elsewhere in Jeremiah, God says, he will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. That is the grace of God. Do you realize that God is a brain surgeon, right? He gives heart transplants. He writes his word on your mind and, and he writes it on your heart. If you are a member of this new covenant so that you can walk in obedience. So how does he do that? Remember, he does so through the spirit. God gives his Holy Spirit to the church. The Holy Spirit is, is God. Comes into the church, dwells in them gives the people of God a new heart and a new mind. So under the old covenant, disobedience was common specifically because the members of the old covenant did not have the spirit of God permanently residing on them. If you were a member of the old covenant, you did not have this guarantee that the spirit was gonna dwell in you. You didn't have the guarantee that the Spirit was going to give you a new heart and a new mind. That wasn't promised to people under the old covenant. 
However, under the new covenant, that is the case. We have God's spirit permanently dwelling in us, enabling us to understand God's word and then obey God's word. Think about this for a moment. The reason that the Israelites rebelled over and over and over again throughout the course of history was specifically because they did not have what they needed in order to remain faithful. They didn't have God's spirit residing within them, permanently indwelling them, giving them this new heart. But we can remain faithful to God not on account of our own strength, but by God's grace, as he graciously gives us his spirit so that we can walk with him for all the days of our life. Have you, have you ever felt the, the overwhelming weight? What if I walk away from God? What if I just commit some heinous act of sin? Have you ever felt that, that, that feeling? of just discouragement and worry, looking towards the future and not knowing if you're going to just run off the deep end. I tell you the truth, I do have these fears. I, I see pastors falling into sin, some of whom I, I, I respect, and that leaves me fearful. Is there hope that I don't have to go through what that pastor went through? Because in a real sense, I'm just thinking about my family, right? I'm thinking about my kids and just thinking, wait, if, if I have a moral failure, like I'm done, <laughs> I'm done. And what, what do I do for my family? What do I do for my wife? What do I do for my kids? And I just have this legitimate fear. I mean, just last week, one pastor that I've been looking up to for years fell into sexual immorality. Like one of the most, I just, I would never expect it, never in a million years falls into sexual immorality, removed from his position at his church, and there's a trail of hurt following in his wake. For me, that's sobering. Godly example like that, falling into just heinous sin. And it, it makes me ask, do I have to go through that? Do I have to, to look forward to something like that? Do you have to go through something like that? Well, let me assure you, the answer is actually no. You don't. You don't actually have to fall into heinous sin. You don't have to wander away from God. Why? Because he has given you his spirit. He has given you a new heart to obey him. He has given you a new mind to stay obedient to him. And I also wanna point out that when God gives you his spirit, you have a permanent seal, sealed for his courts above. As we just sang, the power of God's spirit seals you for the day of salvation. So you are guaranteed with that seal that one day you will stand before God. And you can know that that, that seal means that you will not be unpackaged until you're standing before God's throne. That's what it means to be sealed by God's spirit as we see in Ephesians 1. 
The Spirit is the guarantee that you have new life. He is the guarantee that you will enter into God's presence one day. The Spirit writes God's word on your heart. And let's not forget, the Spirit is the one who wrote God's word in the first place. Word inspired by the Spirit. And now that same Spirit dwells in you, giving you the ability to understand what he wrote through prophets centuries ago and giving you the ability to obey what he has written to you. The next benefit we see now of the new covenant is also laid out in verse 10. It's a restored relationship with God. Look at the end of verse 10. Here's the next benefit of the new covenant. I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, when Israel broke the old covenant, the relationship between God and his people was hindered. Remember, one of the key components of a covenant is the relationship. The relationship is essential to the entire idea of a covenant. And so when the covenant is broken, what does that mean for the relationship? Well, God here is pointing out that there will be a restoration a restoration of the most important relationship any human being could ever have between man and God. So you were created to be in relationship with God. You were created for that. You were created in God's image. In fact, every single human being is created in God's image. And that means a variety of things. But one thing specifically that it means to be created in God's image is is it means that you were created for relationship. You were created for this purpose. This is the supreme relationship that is restored between God and man in the new covenant. This is why it matters that Christ is the high priest. He enables you to have a relationship with God. You can have fellowship with him. And one day, all of us who are a part of this new covenant will walk with God. Literally, we will walk in his presence. What a day that will be when we get to stand before our God. So think about the implications this has for us. As we go out and speak the gospel to other people, we aren't going out and calling people to be prunes. You get angry at everyone for living sinful lives. Like that, that, that's not our job as Christians as we go out and do evangelism. We're not going out and calling people to live joyless lives void of pleasure. That's not what we are called to do as Christians. In fact, we are calling people to live the most joyful and the most meaningfully pleasurable life there is that human beings could possibly experience. C.S. Lewis puts it well. He says, we are far too easily satisfied. You know, so many people that we come in, con in contact with every single day are wasting their lives, playing in mud puddles while a fully funded vacation is at sea on offer. And that's the message that we get to offer people. <laughs> Quit playing in your mud pies. Christ is calling you 
onto this fully funded voyage out at sea where you get to be in relationship with God. You get to live the way, the, the, in, in the manner that you were created to live. You get to live for God. You get to have a relationship with God who is the source of joy, the source of pure pleasure. That's what we get to look forward to. That's what Christ accomplishes with his new covenant. Next, verse 11, we see that the new covenant enables the entire body of this covenant people to know the Lord. Look at verse seven. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So notice here what God is promising. Every single person who's a member of this covenant will know God. Everyone who is a member of this covenant will have a sincere relationship with God. You don't have non-believers who are members of the new covenant. This is actually significant because under the old covenant, there was a massive portion of Israel that did not have a genuine faith in God. And yet they were members of the covenant. In fact, there are times in Israel's history where the vast majority of Israel did not have faith in God. And so think about this for a moment. If you're a covenant member and you have sincere faith in God and you're thinking, okay, if we walk in disobedience as a nation, we're going into exile. If we walk in disobedience as a nation, I'm going to experience judgment. So you're looking at your neighbor and you're saying, wait, you are living in disobedience. You need to know the Lord or else we're going into judgment or else my family is going to suffer. My children are gonna suffer because of you, because you're walking in disobedience. That, that was real life under the old covenant. But for us, if you are a member of the new covenant, every single individual who is a member of this covenant is truly saved. They have a true conversion. They have this new heart. I mean, when you read the prophets, sometimes you're left wondering, why is the prophet talking to Israel as though they're non-believers? I mean, honestly, the answer is pretty simple. They weren't. They weren't believers. They did not have a genuine faith in God. I mean, they were going to temples dedicated to false gods and sleeping with cult prostitutes. They were quick to doubt God quick to abandon God, quick to forsake God, quick to turn to idols. But here we see that everyone under this new covenant is converted. Everyone under the new covenant has a renewed spirit. And I wanna point out that this does carry implications in the way we carry out the, the, the purpose of the church. The church is a gathering of Christians and so that should dictate the way we do things as a church. I mean, this does influence the way I personally preach. As you've probably figured out, I don't necessarily gear my messages to non-Christians. That doesn't mean I, I just, you know, leave them behind and, and, and don't try to communicate in a way that's understandable. 
right? I spent a large portion of this, this evening explaining what a covenant was and, and what the old covenant was, who's Moses, right? If you're a non-Christian and you don't know about the Bible, like those are questions you have. I have no clue what the law is. I have no clue who Moses is, like explain, right? And so I try to do that, but when it comes, towards, comes to my messages, I'm gearing my messages towards the Christian. So I do, like I said, I, I try to keep in mind that there may be non-Christians in our midst. So I preach the gospel to the Christian and to the non-Christian alike. And yet I try to focus primarily on the Christian. And you know what that means? It means when you bring a non-Christian here and, and they don't know the lingo and they're, they're wondering like, Ah, I, I couldn't quite follow with a po- couple of points in the sermons. That's an opportunity for you after the service to talk to that person and start to explain the gospel to them. Start explaining what it means, right? That's a perfect opportunity for you to bring people here and then just talk to them. Now you have something to talk to them about that's centered on the gospel, that's centered on who Christ is. You see the church, the purpose of the church is to build Christians up so that they can do the work of ministry well. That's specifically why I preach the way I do. That's why I want to challenge Christians to grow. I want to challenge Christians in the room to know their Bible better. And that way, when you go out and you begin to do ministry, you can be more effective in the ministry you're doing. You can be a better small group leader. You can be better at sharing the gospel. You can be better at having conversations about the Bible with someone who's coming at you with all sorts of questions about who God is, who Christ is, what the difference is between the old and the new covenant, right? I, Sunday, uh, after I preached, I, I had a guy come up to me. Um, I, I don't know if he was a Christian by some of the things he was saying, I, I, I doubt it, <laughs> but he, he was coming with all of these questions about the new covenant and the old covenant and, and what's the difference between these laws and the old covenant? Are you just being arbitrary, picking which ones you think we need to obey, right? He's just coming at me full-fledged with all sorts of questions. And it, it actually turned into be a, a, turned out to be a really good conversation for like 15, 20 minutes after the sermon. We're just talking about scripture and talking about the word, right? And he's just question after one, after another, one after another. But ultimately, my hope is that that conversation that I had with that guy, I'm hoping that every single person in this room could have the same conversation with that guy. I don't wanna be the only person in the room who can talk to a non-believer about all of his questions. You know, Ephesians 4 says, the role of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That means everyone here has a role in the work of ministry. It's not just a one-man show. It's not just the, the pastors at Golden Hills are doing all the ministry. No, we're equipping you to do the ministry. We're equipping you to have the gospel conversations. We're equipping you to go to San Francisco, to City Impact, where many students are now, and have conversations with people in the Tenderloin. We're equipping you to go to Estonia so that you can be engaging non-Christians and talking to them about what the gospel means, right? It's not a one-man show. It's on you. And so I try to preach in such a way that's gonna encourage people to do that very thing. I know that's the way Phil preaches. That's why he preaches the way he does, to equip the body, to equip the church for the work of ministry. You see, unlike the prophets who spent their time trying to convince the Israelites to know the Lord, have faith, be a follower of Yahweh, 
instead of doing that under the new covenant, the pastors have the privilege of equipping the saints to do ministry themselves, right? I'm not left just like trying to convince people like, hey, you need to know the Lord. You need to be a Christian. Instead, I get to have conversations with you guys and, and, and we get to do equipping here so that you can be going out and encouraging other people who don't know the Lord. Know the Lord, here's why you should know him, right? What a joy as the church that we get to partner with God and doing ministry like that. Now, verse 12, here's the final benefit we see in the new covenant. The new covenant has an effective sacrifice. Verse 12, for I will be merciful towards their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Now in the coming weeks, we're going to focus explicitly on this topic. The new covenant brings about the forgiveness of sins. Christ, the perfect sacrifice, brings about the forgiveness of sins. So I'm not gonna spend a ton of time here, but I wanna point out that all of the different aspects of the new covenant that we've been talking about are only possible because there is forgiveness of sins in the person of Jesus. Notice the first word of verse 12, for. In other words, because. Everything I just said is true. Because I will be merciful towards their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. The reason the new covenant is possible is because God forgives sins in the person of Christ. So everything we've just spoken about, the fact that the law is written on your heart and on your mind by the spirit, the fact that you have been restored in your relationship with God, the fact that every person of the new covenant community knows the Lord, all of these things are possible because God forgives sins. So, how does this make sense? Remember, because of the new covenant, the spirit dwells in you now, gives you a new heart, gives you a new mind. The spirit, who is God, could not dwell in you unless you were cleansed. You have to be cleansed in order for God to come and make his dwelling in you. Right? You need to be made into a pure and holy temple in order for God to make his residence in you. So there has to be a forgiveness of sins. There has to be cleansing in order for you to experience the benefits of having God's spirit reside in your heart. Next, because Christ offers the forgiveness of sins, our relationship with God is restored. So now we can walk in God's presence with a restored relationship simply because our sin has been removed. No longer is there a chasm separating us from God. The chasm has been broken through the work of Christ. Now we can walk through into God's presence, pure and clean, the, re- the relationship that we have with God is now restored because now we have the ability to enter into his presence. We could never do that prior to the forgiveness of sins. Now, because of the forgiveness of sins, we are made into a new people. 
everyone who experiences this now has a true relationship with Christ. Now we have a new community of true believers in Christ. So the forgiveness of sins in Christ makes all of that possible. So we need to keep that in mind next couple of weeks as we begin to consider the perfect sacrifice, the next part of this symphony. So I look forward to that. I'm sad I won't be here, but I'll get to listen to it online. Um, So with that, let's let's just pray and respond to these truths uh, with singing. Father, we are just so grateful for the fact that there is a new covenant with so many benefits for us to experience. Father, we do want to know you. We, we want to have a sincere relationship with you, and we know that that is possible with the new covenant. And we praise you for that. We ask that you would be with us this evening as we continue our night and uh, just praising you. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.